Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bibles to turn to Esther chapter 4. I will go ahead and read the entire chapter and ask for God's help to guide us in our study. So Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hattok, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hattok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast, as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that we would receive your word with meekness, Lord, that we would indeed be doers of the word and not hearers only. And Lord, we ask that you would do this by your spirit, that you would uh, come near to us, draw near to us, and be present among your people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So perhaps the Medal of Honor is the greatest award that you can receive in this country. In World War II, there were something like 473 medals given out to uh, extraordinary soldiers, brave in battle, courageous in every way. Uh, yet there was one Medal of Honor recipient that was different than just about any of the other ones. He was a man who never picked up a weapon. He was a man who said that he wouldn't kill anyone. He was a conscientious objector. He believed that for him, it would go against his conscience to kill another man, and so he served as a medic in the 77th Infantry Division. You may know his name. His name is Desmond Doss. 
And he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was scorned along the way as he was coming up in the ranks of the military for his lack, of, his refusal to take up arms to fight. And so they saw him as a coward. They saw him as somebody that simply did not want to fight. Uh, yet on one fateful day, Desmond Doss was with the rest of his soldiers and a Japanese counterattack took place that left many dead and even more injured. And as the army retreated, Desmond Doss stayed back. He stayed back and, and helped all of the wounded soldiers, getting them out of harm's way. He was shot at. He was shot even in the arm. A grenade hit him in the leg. Uh, that he took on many damages throughout this battle. But he alone saved 75 men that day. He was a man for such a time as this. For Desmond Doss, it was his defining moment. For the rest of his soldiers, they saw him not as a coward, but as probably more courageous than the rest of them. And we're coming to a text today that has Esther's defining moment. Esther has now been put into a situation where she can either shrink back in fear or she can stand up in courage. And we'll see as we study this text that Esther certainly isn't the most courageous person we've ever seen in the Bible, that she is really just like you and me. And so I think there's much to learn from Esther, and especially in this chapter. As we study this text, I just want to highlight, if you're taking notes, three different scenes. First, we want to see Mordecai's lament. Second, we want to see Esther's distress. And then thirdly and finally, we want to see a glimmer of providence. So if you glance at verse 1, it says that when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. It doesn't take too long for Mordecai to find out what has occurred in recent days. There's been a plan. There's been a, a, a controversy that has now come up because Haman the Agagite has now decided that the Jews are the focus of his, his fury and his wrath. Haman, as you remember, is, he's an insecure man. He was offended by Mordecai because he refused to bow down to him, yet he is ruthlessly wicked. He seeks to put an end not only to Mordecai, but to the entire Jewish people. And so Mordecai finds out about this plot. And how does he express himself? Well, he expresses himself with a lament. Of course, the culture and customs of those days were significantly different than our own. We would typically go into our own homes to weep privately, but here Mordecai takes to the streets to let everybody know what is going on. He even has clothes that represent, outwardly display his sorrow and his distress. Unless we think that he might have any recourse in the king's palace, that possible recourse is removed, as you see in verse 2. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed. In sackcloth. So he could weep, he could mourn, he could lament all he wanted, but he couldn't do it in the king's palace. The king's gate was shut to him. And I think there's something interesting here to even take into consideration for our own lives as being exiles for Christ. Uh, there are many times when the governments of this world, when kings and rulers may provide a possible recourse for justice for us that we can cry out to them with a, a complaint, a cry out for justice, and they may hear us. But there are many times when the king's gate will be shut to us. 
It will be shut because apparently uh, their merry little kingdoms don't want to be upset by the distress of the people of God. And yet it is always true that our king, the king of kings, his gate is always open to us. That we can take our lament, we can take our complaint right into his palace and he will hear us. Christ says to us, come all to me who are heavy and laden and, and weary and I will give you rest. The king's gate, the true king, his gate is always open to us. We may come to him. And we see that kind of lamenting, that kind of crying out to God here in verse 3. That it's not only Mordecai that's crying out, but it's the entire Jewish community. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai is not alone. The whole people of God are facing this sorrowful day that their lives are now at risk. They're not going about singing joyfully and jolly songs about the providence of God. They're singing sorrowful songs, knowing that their doom seems to be sure. And so we have Mordecai and really all of the Jewish community's lament in verses 1 through 3, but that then leads to Esther's distress in verse 4. I suppose that I belong to the uh, future wave of preachers and pastors who have veggie tales etched on my psyche. I, I belong to, a, 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 you know, it's been three years of seminary and still I cannot get veggie tales out of my mind. So when I look at the book of Daniel and I think about the, the big statue that Nebuchadnezzar has erected for himself, I think about a big chocolate bunny. And even in this text, even here, in, if you've seen Esther, Queen Esther the movie, uh, it's lightened for children. Rather than genocide being the threat that Haman is bringing the people of God, it's the island of perpetual tickling. Um, and so it, they completely refashion the stories. And there's even a way that uh, these cartoons, which are good in many cases that I grew up on, uh, they miss the point of some of these stories, um, unfortunately. And with Esther, they have the temptation to lionize her, to make her someone who is uh, so courageous that she stands above the rest, that she really doesn't have human characteristics like us. She's, she's not fearful, but yet she's brave and she's a powerful woman. And we really don't see that in the story of Esther. We see somebody that's really just like us. Um, yet there's commentators that want to come along and say that Esther is really a, a wicked woman, that she is an adulterous woman. And I don't think it's necessary to demonize her either, but as we discover in the coming verses in Esther's distress, we see her just like us. Look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not ex accept them. So... Esther is finding out that Mordecai is lamenting and trying to figure out what is going on here. Uh, he's out in the streets crying and weeping. What could possibly be the problem? And commentators really want to have a field day over this. Because if you remember at the end of chapter 3, it says that the entire city of Susa was thrown into confusion uh, with the news of this edict. 
that the, the, the edict from Haman had gone out and everybody was talking about it. Yet, and all throughout all of uh, this, this kingdom, you have the Jews being upset about it. And yet there's one Jew that doesn't seem to have the slightest clue about it. That's Esther. Esther doesn't seem to know what's going on with the people of God. And so then the temptation would be just to demonize her, that she's so obsessed with, with makeup and, and the extravagances of the kingdom that she has totally removed herself from the people of God. And I don't think that's what the text is trying to communicate, but we do see something of the tension of what it is to live between two worlds, that Esther had lived as the queen of Persia for so long that she had really had her identity as Hadassah the Jew fall into the background. That's a temptation for all of us, of course, that when we live in the kingdoms of this earth, our temptation will be to, to forget who we really are, what kingdom we really belong to. And you see a bit of that here with Esther as she seems to be unaware of what's going on. And then verses 5 through 11, there's a dialogue that ensues between Mordecai and Esther. Esther desires to figure out what's going on with Mordecai. And Mordecai sends word back, and they use this intermediary, the eunuch named Hatak. If you just jump down to verse 8, Mordecai lets her in on the news. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Mordecai has a plan. He's always scheming. He's always got a plan. And Mordecai says, Esther, your only hope. There's nothing we could possibly do. You have to go right to the king and get him to put an end to this edict that has us all at risk. And look at how Esther responds in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All of the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So what's Esther's response? I don't like your plan, Mordecai doesn't sound like a good idea to me. After all, it's literally the law of the land that I can't just go marching into the king's palace and ask him to put an end to this edict that has gone out. Besides, the king seems to be done with me. I haven't even seen him in 30 days. And so Esther has a very understandable response here, of course, that she has a new kind of distress Mordecai wants her to do something about this, yet she seems to be unwilling. And so here we have Esther facing a challenge. Do I shrink back or do I stand up for what is right? Esther doesn't seem to be up to the task, at least at this point. She has every excuse and very legitimate ones at that. She seems to have every reason to not do what... Mordecai is saying, and yet we get this glimpse of providence, even a glimmer of providence in verses 12 through 17 that may change her mind. Last week we heard from the quote from the great Puritan John Flavel that providence is like reading Hebrew. It's best read backwards. So Mordecai is going to use providence. He's going to read providence here in these verses. Read verse 12 with me. 
And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai hasn't given up. He has one last appeal to make to Esther. Don't think that you're going to be safe, Esther. I'm sure Haman knows that you're a Jew as well. Don't think that you can just shrink back and hide and hope that you somehow survive the storm that's about to attack the people of God. You're not going to be safe. But then he says something even more interesting. If you keep silent at this time, relief will come from another place. I'm not sure exactly what Mordecai had in view here, but it seems like he has some degree of confidence that God's people will be preserved. And if he has read his Bible well, the promise in Scripture is that God will bless all the nations through Israel, and it's going to be through Israel that the Redeemer, the Messiah, comes. And so Mordecai could have that kind of confidence. Yet he even pushes the point even further here as he says, and who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying to Esther, you think it was just an accident that you got here? Don't you think that there's maybe a, a reason why you're here, that something or someone has put you in a place where you can do something about it? So Mordecai is pushing this point of providence. Uh, and we don't have to wait till next week to see what Esther's going to do. We see this in verse 16 as she replies to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Esther finds the courage that she seemed to lack at the beginning of the courage. Something was in Mordecai's words that gave her courage to actually say, if I perish, I perish. It doesn't matter what happens to me. If I perish, I perish. She goes from being a lamb to a lion. Something happens in what Mordecai is saying that gives her strength, gives her courage where she previously didn't have any. So as we begin to wrap up our time, I want to explore how this glimmer of providence really transformed Esther and how it can transform us. Mordecai doesn't say it directly, but we can look back on this text and see exactly how the providence of God is the driving force of his appeal to Esther. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Whether or not Esther and Mordecai had a grasp of the doctrine of providence like we do today, uh, this book is certainly trying to communicate that, isn't it? The whole book of Esther is a long story about God's providence. If you flip a few chapters down the road in Esther chapter 9, it talks about a feast being inaugurated, the Feast of Purim. And that's based on the word pure, which, come, which is the word for lots. Kids, you can think of that as dice. And really, the icon of this book are two dice, in a way. Random chance. Random chance. It just so happened that Vashti was kicked out of the king's palace. It just so happened 
that Esther found favor in the king's eyes. It just so happened that Mordecai was in the right place and in the right, uh, at the right time to overhear a plot against the king. It just so happens that Esther is in the king's palace for such a time as this. If we know and read our Bibles well, we know that it's not random chance. God is the one who is ordaining all things that come to pass. He is the one who is orchestrating all these events, putting together a beautiful story. So we can take courage from that. Because behind every frowning providence, just like the one in this text, there hides a smiling face of the divine. God is hiding his smiling face, even in such a, 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 an atrocity as what seemed like it was going to take place. And we can also take encouragement by the transformation of Queen Esther. Our queen was not courageous to begin this chapter. She didn't start with it. And I hope you find encouragement in that. Because that means she's just like you and me. She needs courage and fortitude. And where does she get that? Well, she gets that from the fact that God has put her in a place for such a time as this. That he is the one who is in control. And he can take lamb-hearted people and turn them into lions for his service. So God uses the feeble-hearted. He uses the faint-hearted. He often does this in Scripture, just so that we would know so clearly that he is the one who is really at work. He's not raising up these superheroes. He's raising up ordinary people to accomplish his purposes, his tasks. I remember, um, well, this was way before my time, but I remember hearing an interview. In it was a football player in 1987. Uh, his name was Brian Bosworth. And he uh, came to the NFL with a bunch of uh, excitement and, and all of this buzz around him because he was supposed to be one of the better football players to enter the league that year. And in an interview, he said that all I want is the defining moment. Well, three years go by and he's out of the league. He never finds that defining moment. And we can have the temptation, even reading this story, and look at Esther's defining moment and think, man... I want the defining moment. I want that moment when I stand up for Christ in the midst of persecution and danger, that I stand up for him. Well, Esther didn't go looking for the defining moment. It found her. That God was the one that brought it right on her doorstep. And so the call to Christians is to be faithful in the ordinary, that ordinary growth in Christ, living faithfully for his kingdom, that's our responsibility. And who knows whether or not God will bring that defining moment for such a time as this. So faithfulness is the call to Christians. And of course, we can remember the faithfulness of Christ, who at his defining moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he didn't say, if I perish, I perish. But he said, I will perish so that you might have life. So we can find courage from our Savior. Let's pray. Father, what a story the book of Esther is, Lord, that you have redeemed a people for yourself, Lord, that you've called them out of darkness, and you preserved that people through many different ways and many different vessels. Lord, that we would be used by you. Lord, that we would serve you in each and every one of our lives, that we would be faithful in the small thing and in the great thing. Lord, would you uh, call us to this task, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.